Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty good. Uh, let me say that this uh, episode of Babylon 5 was way better than the premiere. Just going to throw it out there. Man, shots fired. All the fans of the premieres are going to be in our DMs and our email account that we don't check. So angry. <laughs> so angry. So uh, today we're covering... Uh, see season two episode two of babylon five revelations which uh, premiered on the 11th of november 94 and then we're going to talk about uh, ds9 season three episode two house of quark which uh premiered on the 10th of october 1994 for my friend's reference here this is the one where all the stuff we thought should have happened in the season premiere actually happened and so in the a plot we have sheridan have a very eventful second episode as he deals with uh, malari's frustration at the lack of a b5 advisory council quorum delin's emergence from her cocoon jakar's return from his scouting expedition on the rim Dr. Franklin's proposal of a radical treatment course for a comatose Garibaldi, a visit from uh, Sheridan's sister Lizzie with a message from his dead wife Anna, and a surprise message from President Clark. And then in the B-plot, we have Mr. Morden asking uh, something from Malari in return and getting it, which is uh, much to Jakara's consternation, so much so that he must retreat to one of the hoariest cliches of science fiction and recite W.B. Yeats' The Second Coming to Natoth. So a lot happened here in this uh, in this episode. Looking back at your A and your A plot and your B plot synopses, there was a whole bunch packed into one episode. Some of it I don't even really like think was important. What struck you as unimportant, I guess, just to start there. Well, for starters, the whole Sheridan Lizzie thing was just ugh. I don't want to hear about Johnny and Lizzie. That was the most boring scenes ever on the show so far. Lizzie's been one of the worst people to come aboard B5. I mean, I, I don't think it was like particularly well done or well written, but I, I I don't really have the problem with it that you seem to have. I don't know. Like, it, you, you know, I, I wouldn't give uh, the actress playing Lizzie any medals, but I didn't think it, you know, there was a huge problem there. I'm pretty sure she never comes back and is never referenced again, if that's uh, any consolation to you, though. That's that's good news. That's really good news because Johnny and Lizzie, just extremely boring. Let me tell you why. Let me give you let me give you some reason why. This is one thing that bugs the hell out of me. Like the whole video message at the end from Anna, you know, Lizzie, I guess brings to her or whatever. That was so lame. I'm gonna make a really like oddball reference, but it's gonna bring it back. I promise. Okay. So in Batman Forever, Bruce Wayne is feeling like guilty because he thinks like he's the cause of his parents' death. I don't know if you remember this. Um, I remember this from the comics, but I, I really don't feel like it happened in Batman forever, but I mean, I haven't seen Batman forever in so long that I I can't definitively say this. Okay. It didn't actually happen in the film. It was actually cut. (laughs) Part of it was. Okay. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, in the novelization and all the other stuff that goes along with Batman forever, it was part of it. So, all right, so Bruce Wayne finds this journal from his father, okay, and Mm -hmm. Bruce was feeling guilty because he thought he's the one that drug his parents to go see the movie that they end up getting shot at, but Mm -hmm. no, actually, Bruce wanted to stay home and watch cartoons, and it specifically writes in his journal, Bruce wants to see his cartoons, but he'll just have to wait, we're going out tonight, that's what popped in my head when I got the the message from uh, Sheridan's former wife. 
I want my heroes to have like uh, those consequences and unnecessary guilt for like the death of their loved ones. I want them to have that. <laughs> oh, I think I think that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, it's ridic- It's ridiculous because a that's just not what Batman's motivation should be. Like I really, really hate when writers and I think in the comics Jim Starlin and Brian Azzarello have both done this. They've like tried to make you know Bruce feel guilty about his parents dying because like oh he threw a tantrum and they wanted to take him to the movie theater to soothe the tantrum or I forget exactly how Azarello did it but and even though I like Azarello and I like Starlin like I hate that trope it's lame it's stupid it's unimaginative and it confuses Batman with Spider-Man like Spider-Man does what he does out of guilt but Batman should do what he does out of either vengeance and the darker forms or out of a sort of broader sort of social mission that no one else should face what he faced in the more positive forms. And I really, really hate that use of guilt. And so, I mean, I wouldn't want to write that subplot you described in Batman Forever. I think that's a bad subplot. But I like just the whole idea that like Batman or Sheridan should feel like this unnecessary guilt. That just annoys me. I think that's horrible writing and shouldn't... uh shouldn't be gone into. I'm on the other end of the spectrum, Bob. I think that Sheridan should have that guilt because I think it's going to make him a better character. I mean, but the entire point is that Sheridan is ir- is feeling irrationally guilty, I think. That's like the entire point of the of the episode. It's that he he takes on too much and he's feeling guilty when honestly he has, you know, he shouldn't feel guilty for this. I mean, maybe he should feel guilty that he didn't have a, you know, a more um, a more in-person relationship with Anna while she was alive, but he, he shouldn't feel guilty that, you know, their work took them different places. He should feel guilt, Bob. He should feel guilty. He killed his well, wife. Of course, here, here's the thing, Bob. Here's the thing, Bob. It's ridiculous. They set it up, though, so that eventually, um, I don't know, you've seen the whole thing, don't spoil it for me, but they set it up as though eventually he's going to run into his wife again. I don't know if he will or not. Don't ruin it. Don't spoil it. These things are hard to say. Okay, don't spoil it. They set it up that way. Because apparently she was just disappeared. She didn't die. Whatever sir, whatever thing she was going to isn't there anymore. All right. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna find out some more about that pretty relatively soon. Damn it, Bob. <laughs> Twitter's blowing up now, Bob. Twitter's gonna blow up. Let's let's go back to the to the to the big cocoon in the in the room. Delin comes out of her yeah, cocoon. Matt, would would you swap my cocoon for me? You want me to swab your cocoon? Yeah, you know, like Lanier was doing. You know, if like, if. If you were in a cocoon, what the hell would you come out as? I mean, I, I, a thinner version of myself. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know what I would come out as. Maybe sure, the cocoon. Maybe the cocoon has potential as a weight loss therapy. Maybe I'll come out with hair. That would be nice. I'd like that. I don't. I don't think there's any force in the galaxy that can restore your hair, Matt. No, j- just like Delin. I'll come out like Delin came out with hair. I'm gonna come out of the cocoon with hair. It's gonna be great. So, some things can't be restored, Matt. Maybe you could get a cool skull plate. Yeah. I don't even know if I'd want a skull plate. They're not that cool. <laughs> they're not. That, they just look weird. No, they're they're they're, they're really not. I, they're, they're I, rigid. I don't think it's ever really established in the show, but you you wonder like how sensitive that is. Like if I flicked it, would Lanier get angry? Yeah, he probably would. I mean, it probably would like vibrate or something and cause like Ugh. brain spasms or something. I don't know. Ugh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't it, know their physiology. It doesn't seem like a good evolutionary strategy on its face. No. But speaking of evolution, let's talk about Ew. this for a moment. Delin, she's part human, part Minbari. Why? Yes. Is this the next step in their evolution? Or is it No. A- 
Okay. It's something I think is really stupid, and I wish the show had not done. However, something happens a bit later in the show that I didn't recognize at the time, but in hindsight, I can appreciate the symmetry of it. So it's made me feel not so unkindly towards Delenn's transformation, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you on its face. It's a kind of stupid and nonsensical transformation. And I, I honestly assumed that the reason they did it was that, uh, is Mia Furlon the name it, of the yes. actress who plays Delenn? I assumed she was just tired of the makeup was what yeah. I assumed. Yeah, but some Twitter dude said that it took longer to do her makeup now. I mean, I don't know why. Oh, really? That, That's yeah, wild. I, I don't know. So, Twitter dude, if you're out there, you know, shoot us up with some references or something or sources for that. Because I mean, I hold. guess I could see like with now. Now she has to have like she has to have like the normal makeup in the face, and she has to have have her hair styled. And I guess they still have the you know they still have to put on like the the skull cap thing to an extent. So I guess I could sort of see that. Before they probably just shoved all her hair up under the skull cap, and that was the end of it. Whereas yeah. now they actually have to like make it look like there's something under there. So you think she still had hair in season one, or do you think she just had to shave? I'm, I would hope she had. I think she had hair. I don't think these people like were that dedicated to this role. That they all shaved their heads. I would hope not. Are you serious? I mean, you, you seriously think that though? I need to know. Like, is that for real? Do people really do that? I mean, actors transform their bodies in different ways for roles all the time. I mean. I, I don't understand like skull caps, and so maybe she could have had still had hair pretty easily in the season one form, but it just seems like I don't know. At a certain level, it seems like it would be the easiest thing, especially if you're going to be you know getting into that junk you know twenty times a year. Yeah, we're gonna have to Google that and like post some stuff on our Twitter about it, Bob, because uh, I need to see like pictures of Mia Furlow from is it Furlon? Furlon, Furlow, Furlon. Pictures of her and like without hair from season one because that would be freaky yeah i think she died just a couple of years ago unfortunately she did yeah yeah like i said it, it's it, it's a look that i didn't like and i don't like some of the directions her character goes after the transformation i honestly i think i prefer season one to Lynn in a lot of ways but like i said now that in thinking about the whole the whole show in hindsight Given some of the things that happened in season three, I can appreciate the symmetry of um, of her transformation. So, uh, I guess I'll leave it at that. So, did you know that like originally, like Delenn was supposed to be a dude, right, in season one? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've read that. I've read that, and then she was supposed to transform into a uh, into a woman for the rest of the show. Yeah, I think that would have been a lot cooler. If I recall right, they decided that it was going to be too much work on like makeup and whatnot to like have Mia Furlan play a dude for the uh, first season and then, then do the switch. It was her voice. They couldn't get her oh, voice. Oh, it was her right. voice. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that, that would have been cool. I don't know. It, it is kind of weird because you get the sense that the cocoon is not an uncommon thing in Minbari culture. Like, you get the sense that, like, people don't do it all the time, but like Lanier and the council seem to understand what she's doing. It seems to be like an option that you can do if you're Minbari, but then her coming out is human. And I think we'll see this in a, or part human. And we'll see this in a couple more episodes. This season isn't really greeted well. So it does sort of like raise the question of like, okay, well what do Minbari usually go into the cocoon to do then? 
And I feel like had Sinclair stuck around, there would have been an interesting story because I, I feel like she was being set up for somewhat of a love interest to him. And that if Delin was a guy in season one, and then part of it was that he, she needed to like, I don't know, reproduce with Sinclair or something later on, she had to turn into a female. Mm, Do you mm. think, I feel like the plot may have gone in that direction, but it just, you know, it's just different. What gave you romantic vibes from uh, Sinclair and Delin? That whole marriage thing, they had that little marriage ceremony thing, and they're just, oh, okay, yeah. just the, the back and forth between the two of them, like, it, they're, they're, it seemed like there was going to be some chemistry there later on down the road. I, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I never, I never really took it that way in the, in the three times I've watched season one, but I, I, I can see where you're coming from. And he's like their prophet too, so she kind of looks up to him, so maybe I'm just confusing that to, for romantic inclination. Yeah, for me, for me, it was just there was too much like her as his mentor early in season one mm-hmm. for it to really work romantically. But like I said that that might just be like you know me projecting my own inclinations into the show. It doesn't have like I, I'm not I'm not saying your your interpretation of it's wrong. Well, I appreciate that, Bob. Thank you, thank you very much. I mean, many of your interpretations are wrong, and I'm sure we'll get to other wrong ones you have in this episode. But that that one's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, like 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 me referring to uh, her coming out of the cocoon and having rock form all over her body. She looked like a Game of Thrones uh, that virus or whatever that the oh the yeah, yeah. Jorah had. Is it grayscale? Is that what grayscale? It's called? Yeah, she looked like grayscale. Yeah, grayscale, but it felt it seemed a lot more thorough than grayscale usually was on Thrones, from what I remember. But yeah, yeah, I I took it to be a little bit more reptilian than than rock like. Yeah, I, I can see that. It was scaly. It was nasty. Yeah, I, the image of it cracking off in Franklin's hands was pretty cool. Yeah, they should have left her like that for a couple episodes, though. I think since there were so many reveals in this episode. With, yeah, you know, Garibaldi coming back and just all the other in stuff going my, in on. In my memory, she was in. I, I thought she was in the cocoon for at least another episode. I I, I didn't remember it. it. It was the second one. No, they the only held off till the second. Till the, I mean, they could have like yeah. they could have let this go a whole season if they really wanted to. Yeah, I, I was inc- I was incorrectly teasing you um, that you would have to wait a long time uh, last episode before she no. came out, but I, I was quite wrong about that. So let's move on from Delin. Who else we need to talk about? We talked about last time how in the premiere, Sheridan comes off as more militant and possibly more anti-alien or at least anti-Minbari than his predecessor. And so it's kind of interesting. We already talked about a lot of this, but we see him soften a lot in this episode. You know, a lot of feels about his dead wife, Anna. And we also see him express a lot of excitement to Lizzie about the kind of cosmopolitan alien cultures of Babylon 5. Did that sort of softening of Sheridan register for you at all vis-a-vis the premiere? I'll be honest, the the scenes between Johnny and Lizzie were so boring, I I didn't pay much attention to them. Okay, okay. But maybe maybe that is the case. I mean, I think they probably needed to soften him up after the first episode because he came off too harsh, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. And then, am I right in saying that uh, Garibaldi in a coma is Dr. Franklin's first ongoing plot of the show, as opposed to him having a couple of spotlight episodes in season one? I mean, it's like the first time they revisit a plot point that actually involved Franklin. Uh, Mm -hmm. I really thought it was weird how Sheraton just kind of jumps in to drain his own energy for some dude he doesn't really know. (laughs) Like, he doesn't really know Garibaldi. I think it's less about doing it for Garibaldi and partially about proving himself to the new staff 
and partially just like like he says an actual safety concern that he doesn't think franklin should operate the machine alone this whole thing like drains their energy do they get that energy back or is it like something they're that's going to make them die sooner like how do, i don't understand that part of this even in the original episode i get the impression that you're not radically shortening your own life by using the machine unless you go too far that's the impression i got but there's nothing like there's nothing that super grounds that impression that could be not correct it is interesting foreshadowing that there's other plot points like much later in the show that have to do with people having like a finite amount of life energy and so in that context, it would suggest that the miracle machine does um, somewhat detract from your longevity, but it's I I don't know I don't I don't think there's like any definitive evidence from the show either this episode or the prior episode that introduced the machine from season one one way or the other. But we do know for sure that it's more drastic than like okay you use the energy machine now you're just gonna have to drink a little bit of Pedialyte and you'll be back to good. I mean, I, I, I would think of it as being, in my mind, I think of it as being akin to a heavy blood transfusion. Blood transfusion, okay. That sounds, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, so, like, you could definitely go too far, give too much blood, have negative negative medical consequences or death. But, I, you know, I, I think, like, you could give some, then recover. And, yeah, that, that that's my impression, at least. Because it seems like it was more the more the disease that was killing the uh, old doctor um, from Lost in Space with the uh, with the Miracle Machine in the season one episode rather than the use of the machine. With Garibaldi coming back, he's got he's trying to figure out who it is that, you know, shot him in the back. We do find out that it was, you know, Jack. We knew it was Jack, but Garibaldi finds out it was Jack. But then Jack wasn't actually part of the Home Guard, which... I felt like there was a whole big buildup for that in season one, and then nothing. I mean, the home guard's not done, but I think that, I mean, if as I remember, when we saw the home guard in season one, they mostly dealt with rather smaller fry, right? Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the implication here, is that what we're dealing with is, uh, is potentially a much more uh, encompassing uh, conspiracy than just the kind of, like, you know, you're kind of low-level neo-Nazi or you're low-level xenophobe. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I really enjoyed the uh, the angle here. It's, you know, it's always nice to, when the show does a prisoner reference, and so kind of like uh, kind of like Bester did the, uh, the prisoner salute with the OK sign over his eye, we saw that, uh, we saw that Jack did that to Garibaldi in the interrogation room, and so, yeah, from that... Garibaldi builds out this theory that because of that and because of the PSYCOR endorsement of, uh, of Vice President Clark in the last election, that we're looking at a conspiracy that involves the PSYCOR. It's, it's pretty obvious. It's one of the more obvious plot threads I've seen so far. I mean, I don't know how it's going to pay off yet, but I just did like, you know, with President Clark being kind of shady, in my opinion, I guess, mm-hmm. I, I feel like something's going to go down with him. And then ha- taking... Jack, having him transported off Babylon 5 was a big thing, too. Like, why why can't they handle it there? Why do they want to, you know... Because Garibaldi wants him spaced, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I mean, you know, it's the it's not the, it's not the conspiracy, it's the cover-up, as they say. Gotcha. I, it, it is interesting. There's going to be some more developments on Earth Angle, but 
I I would say you have to be really patient with the the Earth plot line. It it takes a long time. So there's there there are more developments this season on it, but it doesn't really come to a head for a long long time. Well, after your Delin foul up, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. How how did I do a Delin foul up? Because you told me it was going to take a while for the Delin thing to pay off in the cocoon. Oh, oh took two okay, episodes. okay. So you don't even remember yeah, that. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I need to even trust like anything you've watched after like the episode we're talking about. I mean may, maybe I'm intentionally lying to you too. I think, I think you, you are. Easy. I yeah, think you are. I yeah. think you're trying to make this even more difficult for me than it already is. Thanks, Bob. I I really enjoy things being difficult for you, Matt. <laughs> um I don't I didn't have anything tremendously interesting to say about uh Jakar and Malari's uh plot lines, but it, it's fun. I'm in I'm enjoying uh, how Malari's, uh, you know, getting pulled in deeper to his deal with Morden. I, I appreciate that Jakar sort of has some sense uh, that Malari is into something pretty evil, pretty big. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's been a pretty fun angle. Yeah, this continued alliance between Malari and Morden is going to cause some major chaos with the Nora regime. Like, I can already see that happening. There's something kind of poetic, too, about Jakar always kind of arriving a little too late like you saw that in the season one finale and then you see it here like he he kind of gains an insight but it's kind of too late to actually act on it the the thing he the bad thing he's predicted has already happened and i i, I kind of appreciate that aspect of this era of jakar's there's always a sense of he's a little behind the curve yeah when we finally see jakar again he's like sitting on top of a rock what the hell's up with that did you just get a rock put in his room I mean, Narn is a kind of hot planet. The physiology of the Narn is a little unclear because they look reptilian, obviously, but apparently they have marsupial-like characteristics. Yeah. Maybe he's just a big reptile and he, he enjoys sunning himself on a rock, a hot rock. So, what what do you think of this episode compared to the premiere? What's your opinion? I liked both this and the premiere. I, you know, they, this one has a lot more accelerated tone of stuff happening. There were things I really appreciated about the premiere too. So, I mean, I'm. I like I like both of them. I don't I don't have a huge uh, huge strong preference either way. Like I honestly believe this should have been the premiere because there's just so much that happens that I think it would have uh, provided the the payoff that the people back in the '90s were waiting for that season. You know, they're waiting for the end of season one. They want to know what's going to happen in season two. I don't think he could have done this as the premiere though, both for two reasons. One is that I mean, one is just because of the character shift. You you have to introduce Sheridan. And I don't think this would have been the best way to introduce Sheridan. And then the, even though, I mean, obviously you're still introducing Sheridan in this episode, but yeah. it, even so. Yeah, uh, and yeah, then the I other thing is that the, the element of delay about uh, Garibaldi being in the coma for a bit, Jakar being gone, Delenn being um, in the cocoon, like the element of delay, I think really adds to this episode. So I don't think this episode could have been as strong if you didn't have season one not making any progress on those three plot lines before it. I think had Sinclair not left, this would have been the season premiere. Uh, maybe then, but I still feel like the the Jakar, Garibaldi, and Delenn stuff would have been less effective if there hadn't been a, at least the other one episode of Buffer in between the in between this and the finale. Anything else about Babylon 5 before we move on to yeah, DS9? I think we covered it pretty pretty thoroughly, maybe even too thoroughly this week. <laughs> but there was there was a lot that happened. There was a ton that happened. Like yeah. what you would expect from a season premiere of a show. I, it's good to see that you're not at all bitter about this. <laughs> Our DS9 episode, this is the one where Quark becomes a Klingon. 
Yes, yes. So in the A plot, we have Quark lying about killing the drunk Cleon Kozak, ironically uh, realizing that to reinvigorate his business, which is flagging under the macro threat of the Dominion, he needs a little micro spice of uh, murder and violence. And then in the B plot, the same Dominion threat is forcing Keiko to close down her school after all the Bajoran students leave the station, putting it into one of the most uh, annoying subplots on the show, thank God. And so while Keiko struggles with a search for meaning, Miles uh, takes up various plans and strategies to give Keiko something else to do now that all of her children are gone. Yeah, I bet you really patted yourself on the back after that macro-micro thing in your A plot, didn't you? Eh, not really. I mean, it's just, you know, it's yeah. macro, yeah, you're, micro. You're, you were it's, proud it's, of it's that. I thing. could tell. You were proud of it. I, uh, I don't know that I was proud of it. So, last time we did the podcast, you told me that we were going to have a Ferengi-based episode where and it it was implied by the title that Quark was going to be involved with the Klingons. Yes. And I was extremely annoyed because I don't really care that much for Ferengi episodes. And you're going to still have to watch all of them, though. I'm going to say, though, I was pleasantly surprised by this episode. Okay. What pleasantly surprised you about it? It was actually entertaining. It's pretty good. I'm going to give you that. Yeah, yeah. It was better than the other ones that we've watched that were Ferengi-centered. There's always something fun about like a Clash of Cultures episode, but I, I also like how kind of, I don't, I don't know if thoughtful is the right word, but just the writers seem to like really tease out well like how Ferengi and Klingon cultures can mesh, like where there would be tensions, where there would be, uh, you know, sort of uh, commonalities, like... It's, it's really skipping ahead, but I, I really enjoyed that in the last episode, or the last moments of the episode, it's kind of paralleling both the Klingon and the Ferengi fondness for, you know, braggadocio and hyperbole as Quark is telling the story of how he defended Grelka's honor. It's a really kind of interesting episode in that sort of way of like the clash of two of Star Trek's more realized alien cultures. It's okay to skip ahead a little, Bob, because honestly, there's not that much to talk about with this episode because it was just a Ferengi episode. Yeah. Nothing huge really happened. It is kind of funny, too, to see like, you know, we've already seen Quark as, you know, I mean, he's a great character, but he's also a... He's also also kind of a vicious misogynist, as uh, all Ferengi are, and it was kind of funny to see him basically have to discover the principles of feminism and marriage equality when he convinces Grelka that, you know, no, he, he can bring things to this marriage. He can figure out how Degore is undermining, uh, you know, the former House of Kozak, now the House of Quark, and so, yeah, Quark being put in the position of, like, uh, you know, the the sort of passive partner in a marriage uh, pleading for equality, I thought was uh, very funny. Yeah. And when he puts his hand on her thigh, that one point, that, that scene was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. No, Grelka's great. Grelka's great. Yeah, she's, like, she's a real fun character. Kudos to that um, actress. It was funny. Yeah. She had really good delivery. I, it is kind of funny that you have, you have these, a lot of these really interesting uh, quark love interests, and then they just never come back. Like, there was his uh, Cardassian lover, whose name I forget, and then there was the younger Ferengi woman who was cross-dressing, and it's like, so you get all of these really interesting romances for Quark, but, you know, some sometimes for understandable reasons, like in this episode, and sometimes for, like, maybe less understandable reasons, like with the Cardassian lover, they just never come back. One thing that this episode and the Babylon 5 episode for this week have in common is that the B-plots were so damn boring. I did not care at all about O'Brien and Kiko and this thing that they have going on. I guess it was supposed to, like, strum at your heartstrings or something a little bit, but it, I just didn't care. 
honestly, it felt mostly like a reason to sort of write Keiko into a more occasional character. Because you already sort of had that in season one where, you know, she would be gone for like six weeks, which is, you know, as as we are both teachers, that's kind of insane. But it felt, you know, I, I don't know if the actress had other commitments or something, but it, it honestly felt just like a pretext to be like, oh, yeah, no, Keiko's, you know, on a on an expedition in Bajor, right? She'll she'll be back when she's back sort of thing. The, the only thing I could come up with is like, what if O'Brien sends Kiko on this mountain survey and she ends up like Sheridan's wife? Dun, dun, dun. Grim, grim. I, I was really shocked that, so O'Brien has some form of conversation about his situation with Keiko with Cisco, Kira, Dax, and Bashir. And of all of those, it's Bashir that has the most mature and the best relationship advice for Miles and Keiko. I thought that was uh, shocking. Yeah, it, it almost seemed out of character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it just seems like, yeah, Bashir is just played up to be such, you know, the most immature character on the show a lot of times, but I don't know. It was it, it was there there was a little bit of irony to it that I kind of appreciated yeah. though. I did appreciate Dax's comment though where she was saying I've been a I've been a man and a woman, so I know like that my opinion sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't hate this subplot. It was it, it was fine. I, I don't have strong strong feelings, pro or against. Well, should we uh, go ahead and move into uh, the best episode? Yeah, best episode this week was totally Revelations. Yeah, I, w- I wish I could disagree with you, but obviously it's Revelations. Yeah. Um, how about uh, the best character? This might be a little more controversial. My man Jakar. He was my he was my best character of the week. Glad he's back, and he didn't even notice that the Toth sounds very different. So you were able to look past Jakar's recitation of the second coming? Yes, I was. I I was not. I love Jakar, but man, that scene was brutal. That they I love William Butler Yeats and I love T.S. Eliot, but uh <laughs> characters in uh, fiction should not be allowed to recite poems from either of those two. Or if they do, they should have to pick something a lot more obscure, like Talk about the wild swans at Cooley or, you know, give us some dialogue from Murder in the Cathedral. I'm so tired of hearing the second coming and the hollow men yeah, recited but, over but, and over again. Because those are popular, Bob. Narratives. They're popular. Jakar would have read them. That's the that's the reason why he's reciting those. I mean, it's great that Jakar is enriching himself by exploring human culture, but I also feel like the entire audience has also read them. And so there's no need to pretentiously recite it like you're some sort of advanced English major having discovered this crap. That's all the writers at the show, probably. Yes, it is. I, I do blame the writers, not Jakar. Jakar, Jakar is an innocent. Yeah. Did you not notice that Atoth was a different person? Uh, I didn't really notice, no. I oh. mean, honestly, there was so little in Atoth from season one that it we, was hard to notice. We finally get her, long, her long-term actress shows up. I mean, long-term is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, you can find her on Cameo. We've talked about it before. I think we actually made a mistake in a previous episode where Natoth gets switched out. Like, I know, no, it was the... I think the actress that played Natoth from this point forward is the same. She's the one that's on Cameo. Previously, we okay. said it was a different actress, but it was it, 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 it was a different actress. It should have been okay. a different actress. Is the, is the first Natoth actress dead? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But then they, there was also the other ambassador. Yeah, that, the first aide who got sucked out in airlock. Yeah, that one. So there's been three different people who have 
essentially played Jakar's aide. It really is astonishing that the show kept recasting this role that ultimately turned out to not really be anything at all. I think they reached a point where they got tired of recasting it, so they made it nothing at all. <laughs> That's probably mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad. Like, I mean, we, we talked about this in season one, but Natatha is an interesting character. Like, I think the one or two spotlight episodes she did have in season one, or maybe spotlight episodes is the wrong word, but the one or two episodes in season one where she took on a more prominent role, they were fun and interesting. But it's just, yeah, just the character never seemed to work out. Who's your Who's your favorite character this week, Bob? Oh, uh, Quark, easily. It was, it was a very good Quark episode, and I do love Quark. Yeah, I can agree with that, too. Quark was awesome in this episode. And it was a much better Ferengi episode than, than we let on. Sorry for any listeners who were expecting me to go on a terrible rant about how bad this Ferengi episode was, but it really wasn't. It was, it's worth watching. Oh, don't worry. There's so many more Ferengi episodes. Oh, I know. I've, I've, watched, watch. I've watched those before, too, and they're terrible. Yes, we'll get to those. I, just, I thought this <laughs> one was worse than what I remember. <laughs> All right. So next time we're going to cover uh, The Price of Peace which is the uh, Babylon 5 uh, comic, uh, the first four issues of the ongoing Babylon 5 series at DC. My preference would have been to cover it first in the season because that's when the first issue takes place. But uh, issues two through four, I believe, take place after episode two. And so uh, Matt, being hard on the continuity, thinks you have to go with what the last point rather than the first point in the narrative. So it's a, a deep disagreement between us, but we will pick up the price of peace next week. And then we will also pick up episode four of DS nine equilibrium, which if I remember correctly, is a Dax episode. I think you're right. We'll have to see. All right. So check us out next time on the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows, Babylon five versus DS nine. This has been Bob from Cascadia and I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. Thanks for listening.